Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. Well, in our culture, there's a significant alignment in the therapeutic community with cognitive approaches to healing, especially in the traditions of cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, uh, therapeutic modalities. There are a whole bunch of approaches to emotional distress, uh, anxiety disorders, depression, phobias, binge, insomnia, and so forth. That works under the assumption that uh, if we can address an individual's dysfunctional thought, then their maladaptive behaviors will be uh, alleviated. And if maladaptive behaviors are alleviated, then suffering is lessened in people's life. If you change the way people think, that changes the way people act, that changes the amount of emotional distress. So... That's the model. That's the assumption right there. What are the tools that these cognitive approaches use? There is journaling, where people will record all their ingrained negative thought cycles and dysfunctional self-referential assumptions. Well, what are those? Dysfunctional self-assumptions are the thoughts you have about yourself. I am inherently good or... I don't have any opinion about myself, or I'm inherently bad, I'm skillful, I'm uh, somebody who gets by through my humor or my intelligence or whatever. So we have essentially stories or views about ourselves that we rely on for a sense of resilience and for a sense of coherence in our life. One of the underlying insights of cognitive therapies is that our distorted self-referential assumptions can do us a lot of harm. These cognitive ideas we have about ourselves. So, for example, when we go through a breakup, we might not only feel the emotional pain of somebody no longer being there in our life, we might as well add a story such as, I will never find a partner, I'll always be alone, I'll never be able to connect in a sustained way with another human being. So we take the event and then we do what's called globalizing, which means we turn it into an indictment of ourself. Not just the event, but ourself in the entirety. I will never find a partner, I will never be happy, I will never... Uh, be in a lasting relationship. So one of the core ideas of uh, cognitive therapies is to catch this tendency of taking specific events and through black and white globalizing thought tendencies to turn them into these huge uh, really triggering statements about ourselves, which can reactivate us and reactivate the wounds after a breakup or after a loss. They want, through just developing awareness of all the times we uh, we turn painful events into 
these sort of larger statements to become aware of that and to essentially reframe. Reframing means to turn the story into a different story that doesn't cause suffering. So after a breakup, instead of saying in our minds, I'll never find a partner or why does this always happen to me, which is called personalizing, we might say, well, this happens to everyone in life and uh, I have, there's so many other people that I can meet and connect with. This doesn't mean that I won't find uh, happiness. So just in changing the story from a globalizing negative frame to a positive frame, there's a understandable reduction of suffering. And this is very similar to the Buddha's first noble truth, which is uh, the, the first uh, message the Buddha brings is that, guess what, in life, we all experience old age, sickness, death, sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair. We all get being stuck with the unlovable, being separated from those we, we love and not getting what we want. And so the Buddha is basically saying up front, no matter how you skillful you are, no matter how nice a person you are, no matter how strategic you are, there's going to be a lot of shit that's going to happen as well as good things in your life. And to take it personally is a big mistake. So certainly there's a lot of overlap between cognitive approaches and the Dharma. Uh, another uh, basic tool of cognitive behavioral therapies is it exposes people to situations that activate anxiety, but only at levels that they can tolerate, and it, through what's known as um, memory reconsolidation, through exposing yourself to something that you were previously frightened of, you change the negative association to no longer uh, being frightened of the event. So if you're frightened of heights, a therapist might suggest you and a friend go up to an elevator to the top of a building, but you don't step outside. You just, you know, go to the top floor, but you're in the elevator. The next day, you go up with your friend, you take one foot outside, but you keep one foot in the elevator. The next day, you go up, you step fully outside, but you don't let the elevator door close behind you. And so you are slowly uh, through very um, uh, procedural steps introducing yourself to a stimuli that was once terrifying for you. And through habituation, you're now making it so that you can be in the presence of something that would you'd normally avoid. Avoidance coping is a terrible, terrible human tendency. And um, certainly cognitive therapies are amongst the most successful therapies in giving people tools to overcome phobias. It's extremely efficient in that. Uh, cognitive therapies also help people rehearse for interpersonal situations that cause them stress. So if you're terrified on going on a date because uh, you just find the a process to be intimidating or going on a job interview, a cognitive therapist might sit with you and they would play the job interview or, or the prospective date and they would help you work through different responses and different strategies so you could go through the event without being overly triggered. So again, the basic idea is that if we can adjust our thinking and if we can rehearse for life stressful events, that we'll be able to have a significant reduction in our symptoms and 
that should be enough so that we can live um, well-adjusted lives. Well, uh, and certainly, uh, if you go to any uh, psychiatrist today with a significant uh, disorder that needs to be addressed, the two things that they will do is they will give you medication and they will then point you in the direction of a cognitive therapist because they know that the cognitive therapist's tools will quickly reduce some of your symptoms. It does that because uh, the quickest way to reduce symptoms is to remove the triggering thoughts. Triggering thoughts can, we're as a species great at that, we can just think ourselves into endless trouble. When we go through a little bit of sadness or loss, we can turn it into an ongoing morass, a pit of self-loathing, unless we learn to interrupt the cycles of, of um, dysfunctional thought. So in journaling about our thinking, we learn to catch that, that the maladaptive uh, thinking and we learn to give ourselves significant relief. But here's the rub, which is that I'm not really sure what the rub means. I've just heard people use that and I'm pretty <laughs> confident I know what it means. Uh, the rub is that, uh, that while CBT works very well in the short term, there's every indication that after the initial reduction of some symptoms that in the long term it doesn't significantly in any way alleviate the underlying causes that create the symptoms. So uh, for example, if there are early emotional wounds in childhood that almost certainly are present if we have any sustained uh, negative patterns of thoughts or maladaptive behaviors uh, such as addictions or uh, insomnia or food disorders or shopping or workaholism, etc. Um, those early life wounds are not stored in thinking, in thought realms of the brain. The early emotional wounds that cause dysfunctional moods and dysfunctional behaviors actually come about before we have language. And so using language or thought to try to alleviate these early emotional wounds doesn't work. They're actually, the wounds are stored in memory structures of the brain that are implicit. Implicit means that they're not held in conscious memory, you can't recall the events where you were wounded in one, when you were one or two or three. Uh, they happened before narrative memory was formed. And they're stored in regions of the brain that don't organize memories by stories, narrative thought. They're stored in embodied uh, right hemispheric, right temporal lobe, realms that are deeply associative but don't communicate to us through words or ideas, they communicate to us through your body. That's how the early attachment wounds, the schemas, the internal working models, the early events of childhood are essentially left in place. And because cognitive behavioral therapy 
doesn't really offer the tools to address these wounds, it's not particularly good in the long term of having lasting, meaningful reduction in symptoms. Um, there was a couple of studies. One uh, in a study called The Effects of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy as an Antidepressive Treatment is Falling. Well, that's pretty straightforward. And they come to the the... The summary is the effects of cognitive behavioral therapy have declined linearly and steadily since its introduction as measured by patients' self-reports, clinicians' reports, and rates of symptom remission. So people, after a while, are experiencing insomnia or self-harm or cutting or bulimia or uh, the symptoms that were originally alleviated over a long period of time do not. Uh, remain alleviated. Um, now, certainly some cognitive therapists try to integrate early, uh, try to uncover some of the wounds of childhood. There was a couple of them, Marsha Linehan with her work in DBT and Guidano and Liotti, if I remember, or Liotta, uh, who was in the Italian, the Rome Clinic, did some work with it. But by and large, the vast, 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 vast majority, even if they do uncover some of the events in your childhood that cause some of the wounds, they won't have the tools to address them because they're relying still on tools that are entirely cognitive, thought-based and rehearsal-based, but don't know how to work with you through the body to address the the deepest emotional wounds from childhood. Um and there's every conclusion to believe that unless people who work with cognitive tools uh, integrate techniques from other traditions that are more somatic by nature and also employ non-cognitive tools, that they'll reach a dead end. Uh, a good example would be procrastination. So procrastination is obviously a symptom. You go to a cognitive therapist and the cognitive therapist would identify all of the things that you use to procrastinate and the kind of thoughts you have about yourself when you procrastinate. And they'd even give you exercises to rehearse so that you wouldn't procrastinate. But they wouldn't be able to understand the underlying emotional causes of procrastination, which is generally that the thing you're avoiding is something that you've associated with rejection or abandonment from your early life and that to get you to be able to approach doing whatever it is you've been avoiding, you have to give people somatic tools or visualization techniques or practices that circumnavigate around the cognitive mind so that they'll have any real benefit. So. What this all means is that our behavior isn't driven by our thinking, by cognition. As we know from the work of Antonio Damasio uh, in contemporary uh, clinical uh, science, that um, we are, our actions are driven by our moods and our feelings, not by how we think. We don't act in accordance by what we think or we want to 
act. We act in accordance by how we feel. We experience this all the time. How many times in your life have you said maybe before you go on an interview or a date or you go into a social event and you tell yourself, I'm not going to be nervous. You have every thought and intention that you're, that's the plan. I'm not going to be nervous. So if we acted in accordance with what we think, there'd never be any issues in life. The ther- cognitive therapist would say, okay, here's your problem. You always think you're, you're, you're not going to be, you know, uh, confident. Just tell yourself you're going to be confident. Okay. I'm telling myself that I'm going to go into this job interview. I'll do fine. No, fuck it. <laughs> you won't. Because the emotional wounds that stem from the time you were with your parents and you had to ask them for something and very often they didn't give you what you wanted and that created early emotional wounds that told you whenever you go in a vulnerable situation with somebody who's got power and you ask them for something, you should be ready for rejection and that creates an embodied state of expecting to be rejected and from that embodied state of expecting rejecting rejection you will start to act in a defensive stammering shut down way and you won't make a very good impression and then you'll blame yourself but it really has to do with an early emotional wound that is creating a felt mood that is then creating behaviors and thoughts There was a fascinating study called Relational Consequences of Experiencing Physical Instability. That's a fancy name for a very fun test that they did. They had people sit on an inflatable cushion and talk about their relationships. And then they had them come back the next week and sit in a comfortable chair and ask them the same exact questions. And every time... Consistently across the board, when people sit in uncomfortable chairs and they're wobbly and they're off balance, guess what? They, I don't know about this relationship. <laughs> you know, I should get, I don't know why I'm still in. I should get the hell out. The thoughts and the behaviors come from the feelings that you're in. If you're out of balance, they did the same test having people stand on one leg and they asked them about their marriages. Everybody was going to end up in divorce. Have them stand on two feet comfortably and suddenly everybody becomes robust and optimistic about the health of their relationship. Why? Because behaviors and thoughts come from feeling states. Now, guess who acknowledged this first? You're right, the Buddha. 2,500 years ago, the Buddha presented one of the most important and fundamentally revolutionary uh, psychologies. And at the epicenter of the psychology was this uh, proposal, which has since, I think, been very, very uh, validated by clinical and neuropsychology, which is that the underlying cause of or the fundamental generating uh, factor in thought and behavior is what today we call somatic markers, but by layman's terms are feelings. You have feelings, things of states of comfort, discomfort, skin valence, you feel comfortable in your skin and you don't. You have negative gut feelings or positive gut feelings. You have this embodied sense as well as an attentional sense that 
You're either good with what's going on or bad with what's going on. And from those two very basic states of being flow then your mood, because if you're in a negative physiological state, then you'll wind up in a negative mood. And from a negative mood, you'll have negative thoughts and you'll have defensive withdrawal behaviors. If your body is relaxed and positive, then you'll be inclined towards positive broaden and build emotions, as they're called, where you'll be exploratory, you'll approach people, you'll be open-minded, you'll be curious. If you're in a negative body state, you'll be in withdrawal, you'll be... Uh, you'll try to get out of any situation. You'll try to push away what's going on. So the Buddha is basically saying everything starts from this very basic autonomic nervous system state of approach or withdrawal, comfort or discomfort, relaxed or um, vigilant, on guard, you know, feeling the the sense of danger. If you think about the bulk of our species history, those two states were essentially the entire human condition. You'd either be out hunting for food or foraging for food, I should say, and you'd be very vulnerable and you'd be in a state of alert, or you would be back with the tribe Uh, the eight other people that you spent your entire life with and you would be in a rest and digest mode and you'd be in a connect mode with other people. But while you were out, vulnerable, foraging for food, anybody or thing you encountered, you'd be in a state of, fuck, what the hell's going on? Who the hell are you? Before, you know, and it was a good thing for your survival. So... uh, In the Buddhist model, which has now been very, very deeply validated by not only the work of Damasio, but so many other uh, neuropsychologists from, you know, Joseph Ledoux, Ramachandran, etc., that just basically show that there's this fast circuit in the brain, as Daniel Kahneman calls it, where everything goes through the midbrain, the amygdala, which sets your basic tone, your feeling tone, and from that, everything else flows. So, uh, in the, the Buddha's uh, suggestion is that all of the suffering is not alleviated by changing the way people think. In fact, in the Paticca Samapada commentaries, um, if you wait until the thinking appears, it's too late. The Buddha notes that the escape from the chain is at feelings. If you catch the state that you're in before you go into the interview, before you go on the date, before you have that difficult conversation with your parents, before you get on the phone and you note what you're feeling in your body and you adjust that feeling one, you'll have a far greater chance of having a successful outcome than simply trying to address the way you think. Because by that point, your entire body could be tense. Your mood then could be in a state of anger or loneliness or uh, fear or uh, disgust or whatever. You could then be entirely prone 
at the very smallest incidence of any kind of disappointing interaction, you could be very prone to have a whole host of negative thoughts fly up into your mind, and then it's all downhill from there. So the goal is to catch the feelings before the thinking and the behavior starts. Additionally, where there's a tendency or predilection towards suffering in our life, we catch the feelings that we have when we think about something that's, or ourselves, for example, the feelings we have in our body when we think, when we conjure up an image about ourselves, can have an enormous impact on how resilient we are, how confident we are, how capable we are in interpersonal dynamics and so forth. Now, there was an American philosopher who I believe had absolutely no awareness of Buddhism whatsoever, but he turned into be, out to be one of the great 20th century um, psychologists, even though he was a philosopher. His name was Eugene Zhenlin, and his greatest work was in the 60s and 70s. And he came up with a practice called focusing. And focusing is almost identical, as many people have noted subsequently, to mindfulness practice. In Genlin's practice, what we do is we connect with the nonverbal bodily feelings that underpin whatever worth whatever engagement, situation, anything that we're going into, the first thing we do is we focus on what is the feeling tone, the state of the body, how do we feel non-verbally in our own skin, and we address that. This is from panic attacks to uh, any other symptom we have or any other maladaptive behavior the first thing we do is bypass addressing how we think, trying to cheer ourselves up, trying to talk ourselves into confidence, and we focus on what's going on right now and the way I feel. Is my stomach tight or relaxed? Is my chest open? Is my throat relaxed? Is my face softened? Is my mind just in general open and spacious, or is it jumpy? And constantly reactive. In Zhenlin's work, like the Buddha's work, there's so many overlaps. The basic belief of the two traditions is that there's only real significant change in life when we have a felt shift. So, for example, if every single time you interact with one member of your family, you have, a, you have a negative interaction, you shut down, you don't take care of yourself, you don't you know, stand up for yourself, you become meek or easily manipulated. No matter how much you tell yourself, this time I'm going to be strong and confident, I'm not going to be browbeaten, I'm not going to be uh, taken advantage of, if you try to talk yourself into becoming confident, it won't work at all. It will, because the emotional wounds from childhood are not stored in thinking. But if when, before you go in, you, when you think about 
visualize that conversation or that interaction with the parent for day in and day out. You practice first developing feelings of confidence in your body by remembering all the times that you were, uh, you took care of yourself, that you stood up for yourself, that you were strong. And then you hold and resonate and expand that feeling in your body. And then you visualize that father or that aunt or that mother or that brother, the person who triggers you. And you hold and keep that strong, confident feeling in your body while you practice in your mind being in that situation. Well, then the behaviors and the thoughts will change. They'll be a real significant felt change because you're now going to where the real emotional wounds from childhood are stored. They're stored in that weak, tiny body that we go into, that contracted, protective, physically small state we go into since we were children or, you know, being beaten up by an older brother or by um, some kid in school we would go into this very tight, contracted state of being. And if we can then change that entire physicality, that entire somatic state, when we interact with that person, now we are engaging from an entirely different embodied state. And that is where everything else flows out of. So in this practice we'll be doing, we're going to be... Uh, doing uh, a very set practice in the meditation. We're going to uh, use this uh, this uh, this uh, set of uh, uh, this essentially this modality, this uh, practice that sort of integrates both Zhenlin and the Buddha and the Dharma. What we'll do is we're going to visualize something that is triggering for us that we struggle with. We're going to find the feelings that that situation, that person evokes in us. Then what we're going to do is we're going to ask that feeling what it needs. And then we'll visualize something that will compensate, give us a completely different feeling in the body, and we'll address that state so that we can go into that situation with a greater degree of strength and confidence and change the way we think and act. Okay? Makes sense somewhat? A little bit tricky? I have no idea what I've been talking about. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, uh, we're now going to meditate. So I hope that was interesting. Find a really comfortable seated position. And closing the eyes, unless you want to keep your eyes open and look at the ground in front of you. That's totally okay. There's no wrong or right. And what I like to do before I sit sometimes is just do a nice wobbly body, left to right, front to back, like you're a big top. And then allow your body to come to a standstill. Don't direct your body. Let your body come to a standstill. Your body knows what balance is better than you do. 
And then take a moment to just gently tilt your head up like you're looking at a very tall building. So lifting the chin up, tilting the head a little bit back. And that's really where you put the bulk of your effort. That prevents your top of your body from slouching. And if you can stop that slouch from the head up, then you probably won't slouch anywhere else. So just keep your head in that looking up at the sun type posture. And then what we're going to do is systemically relax everything else in the body. So while you take a very slow, full, complete in-breath, lift up both of your shoulders like you're lifting two heavy bags and you're crossing a room to place those bags across the room. But you're right now lifting those bags while you breathe in. You're holding up the shoulders and then you breathe out and you drop the shoulders and gently pull the shoulders back. You might want to butterfly your shoulders a little bit to pull your shoulders in such a way that you keep your chest nice and open to create a lot of space for the uh, the in-breath, the inhalation. And then a second complete in-breath. Now either push out your belly really awkwardly or pull it in. Do something with it to make it really uncomfortable while you breathe in. And then as you breathe out, relax and soften your belly and just leave it in the most comfortable position you can. Really comfortable belly, really open chest. These are two of the key areas of your vagal vagus nerve cluster, which plays such an influential role in how you perceive the world and your state in the world. And then finally, the third full, complete breath in, squinching the muscles in the face, squinching the toes, making fists, locking the jaw, furrowing the brow, and then as you breathe out, relax everything. Soften all the way down the body, soften the micro-muscles around the eyes, release the jaw, release any tightness, in the back of your neck. Imagine your awareness moving down your back and releasing, unclenching any tightness in the buttocks and legs all the way down to the soles of the feet, releasing Now bring your awareness to the state of your mind. Does your mind feel open and spacious? Or does your awareness feel jumpy? Just noticing that and then... What I'd like you to do is visualize a place 
that you like to go to where you can really relax, where you give yourself permission not to carry around any story about what's going on in your life, all of the unresolved issues from the day You put them aside, any planning about the future, any concerns about what's going on in the rest of the world, all of those concerns, you just give yourself permission to put aside for a little while. This is a place you go where you don't have to be concerned with anything other than the sensations and experiences that are directly impactfully present right now. So you've got nothing to do nowhere to go, no one to take care of, nothing to be concerned about for a little while. Everything in your life is complete. You're not missing anything. You haven't forgotten to do anything. You're exactly where you want to be. You're fully landing in your life fully arriving. And try to get as close as you can to the actual sensations that are occurring right now. The sounds arriving from the Bowery, the cars, construction sounds, the sounds of people on the street, The feeling of your body breathing in and out. The inhalation and exhalation expanding and contracting the chest or the belly. Any sensations of your heart beating or the blood pumping or eyes flickering or the tongue twitching or anything that's just occurring using those sensations to ground you and orient you in your life, to give you anchors so that your brain, your mind doesn't float away 
fascinated by whatever thought is generated by the interpretive realms or regions of the brain. Thoughts are a very small part of experience, but they claim so much of our attention. And there will come times when your mind becomes enchanted by our thoughts, which will continuously try to ensnare awareness. Thoughts can become more and more extreme, alluring, promising, threatening, until they finally grab hold of us and pull us away from the present. And when that happens, don't add any frustration Just release the thought and allow your awareness to return to all the sensations that are actually occurring around you. You can almost approach your meditation as a very relaxing kind of game where your goal is just to stay present and to just allow whatever thoughts are there just to be there without being ensnared. And when you finally do get caught, no big deal at all. It's just part of getting better at awareness and directing your attention And developing inner ease is that you just gently release whatever thought, you note what kind of thought to be on the lookout for, and you just return again and again to this 
wonderful opportunity in life to fully land in your life entirely.
So at this point, I'd like you to just take a quick survey again of your body, note how you're feeling, focusing on the sensations in the front of your body. Does your stomach feel relaxed? Does the breath move your chest easily? Do you feel a lot of ease and comfort? Or does your chest feel tight, a little contracted? Does your throat, the muscles around the throat feel contracted or relaxed? Muscles in the face, does your face feel? Is there a sense of an expression on it? Is there any heaviness or tightness around the eyes? Is the jaw relaxed or clenched? We'll just call this the felt state of the present. And what's the felt mind state? Is the mind relaxed, open, present, or is it tired? Does it feel dark? Does it feel contracted and claustrophobic, or does it feel open and bright? We're going to call that the state of the mind. So we have the state of the body, the state of the mind. And now what I'd like you to do is bring to mind a situation or a person with whom you're struggling in your life. Something, someone that's causing some degree of difficulty Visualize this situation, this person, and then try to make the situation as real as you can and then scan the exact same parts of our experience we just scanned a moment ago. The front of the body, the breath, the chest, the belly, the throat, the face the state of the mind, and you're looking for even the slightest change. It doesn't have to be big. It could be very, very incremental, small, shaded, fractional. But you're looking for anything that tightens, contracts, shifts, You're looking for the felt sense that underpins this difficulty. You can even ask, what is this feeling? What does it want me to know? See if anything 
naturally without any thinking just appears in your mind is this anger fear sadness loneliness is there any kind of sense of what you're experiencing how you would label it it's helpful to know how to label the felt experience so that we can talk about it with others we can convey what we're experiencing we can connect but if you can't come up with a label no worries just see if you have any sense of what it is that you're feeling next what I'd like you to do is for a moment put aside the person or situation that you find difficult and bring to mind a situation or a person with whom you feel really good and confident some place or situation a friend that when you're with that person you can say or do anything without any expectation of rejection without any expectation of being wounded or hurt find any feeling or state in the mind that has changed again now towards a state of strength where you feel energy flowing in your body where you feel something opening up and releasing even the slightest felt change maybe the mind feels a little more bright and open maybe there's a sense of a slight ease in the muscles of the face maybe the breath feels less tight something anything you can find and really resonate with that feeling of strength And lastly, while you hold this new feeling in your body, the feeling of well-being, mm-hmm. 
bring to mind the original image that was difficult while holding this strong, resilient steadfast body returning to the original image while you keep the body in the state of empowerment. So you're changing the felt sensation that you associate with this event that has caused you difficulty this person that has caused or is part of stressful interactions. keeping the body relaxed and comfortable even while the image of the person or situation might normally evoke uh, an entirely different physiological state. So, when you hear the sound of the bowl, very slowly open your eyes and take time, don't look around the room, try to integrate light and color into your awareness in such a way that you maintain an ongoing part of your attention to the way you feel. So you're not using sight as a way to abandon your embodied experience. Part of the felt shift that builds resilience and leads to real change in life depends on maintaining ongoing mindful awareness of how you feel. If you know the way you feel, you can change the way, you can address the way you feel, and then in doing that you can change the way you act.